Well, good morning, Pillar Church. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's a joy and an honor to be able to open up God's word with you on this Sunday morning. This morning, we're starting a brand new sermon series in the book of Jude, and it's entitled Contending for the Faith. My prayer is by the end of this sermon series, you don't only feel compelled to contend for the faith, but that you also feel prepared to contend for the faith. You know, it's easy to get intimidated by the idea of contending or the idea of defending the Christian faith. In fact, that's one of the greatest hindrances we have as Christians when it comes to sharing our faith. And I know this is you because this is me. As we share our faith, we tend to think, man, somebody's going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And so we shy away from sharing our faith because we have a fear that we're not going to be prepared to contend for the Christian faith. And so Jude is calling Christians, uh, the recipients of his letter, and by extension, Christians across this globe to be prepared to contend for the faith. You see, it's a misconception. It's a misconception that that contending for the faith is the job of the professional. Right. It's the job of the professional Christian or it's the job of the professional apologist. Right. And an, an apologist is just somebody who defends the faith. That's their that's how they make their living. That's what they do. They just defend the faith from attacks, both inward and from without. And so they go, well, that's the pastor's job to defend the faith. Or that's the 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 apologist's job to defend the faith. No, no Christian. No, it's your job to be prepared to contend for the faith. And my prayer is that you're not only compelled by the end of the series, but that you feel prepared to contend for the faith. Oftentimes, we forget that there's levels to this thing. And I always tell Christians like, dog, you don't gotta have the sharpest, most intellectual brain to be a great defender of the faith. Sometimes, a godly life is just as robust as a powerful intellectual argument. Oftentimes, a godly life, in fact, a godly life can serve to usurp a a, a powerful argument. I mean, an ungodly life can be used to usurp a powerful argument. And so I tell Christians, man, live as God would have you live and learn the best you can. And God will use you to contend for the faith. And so I, I tell you that, Pillar Church, live a godly life so that your life matches the word of God. And no one can contradict that. And so I call you, do that. Pillar Church, I don't want us to only educate our minds, but I also want us to walk in light. And so I hope that through this series, we are able to both educate our minds as to who Jesus is and how to contend for the faith. But at the same time, I hope that it encourages us to walk in light. Have you ever sat next to somebody and maybe you wasn't in the best mood? And you sit next to that person and you start having engaging in dialogue with that person. I don't know. Maybe you're at a coffee shop. Maybe you're on an airplane. Maybe you're on a train. You know, wherever you may be, maybe you're walking around in your neighborhood and you start engaging with somebody. And you start sharing with them. Maybe you're at a coffee shop and you start sharing with them how dirty this place is. Or maybe you're you're on an airplane and you start start dogging the, the airline. But you didn't realize that you were sitting next to the owner of the shop. Or you didn't realize that that you were sitting next to the owner of the airline or one of the higher up managers of the airline. You ever sat next to somebody who's really important, but you didn't know that they were really important? And that would have changed your interaction with that person had you had known who, who it is that you were sitting next to and talking with. And I know some of y'all have had that experience and you've been embarrassed 
by that experience. And the reality is with the book of Jude, we oftentimes are having that same experience. You're like, yo, Pastor K, what do you mean? If we only knew who Jude was, I think we would pay more attention to his letter. In, in, in Christian history, not much attention has been given to certain books of the Bible for various reasons. And in the New Testament, oftentimes the book of Jude is overlooked for one reason or another. And I think if we allowed it to sink in who the author of Jude is and who Jude is, maybe we would take a much slower approach to reading his letter. Let's look at verse one in the book of Jude and see if he'll tell us who he is. Verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude opens up this letter the same way Paul tends to open up his letters, right? When Paul says that he's a servant of the Lord Jesus, Jude says, yeah, me too. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word is servant there, but the, the actual word is slave, doulos. But the idea there is they're slaves, but they're willing slaves. And because they're willing slaves, they're classified as servants. And so he says, I am a servant. I am a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that much. But then he says this. He says, I'm the brother of James. Now, if you know anything about church history, and even if you look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, you see that James was considered a pillar or a, a, a powerful leader in the early church. Now, this is not the James that's the brother of John, right? There's different, and you gotta remember in Eastern culture, there's so many people with the same name. Well, this James is not the James who's the brother of John James, right? The sons of Zebedee, they call him the sons of thunder in the gospels. That's not that James, that James died early on uh, in the book of Acts. This is a different James. James is a prominent leader and, and Jude is connecting himself to James. You know who James is? James is the brother of Jesus. And Jude says that he's the brother of James. And so who do you think Jude's older brother is? Jude is the baby brother of Jesus. We'll find that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, which begs the question, why would Jude not introduce himself with the big gun? Right. James does the same thing in the beginning of his epistle. He says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus. Jude says, I'm Jude, a servant of the Lord Jesus. Why wouldn't he just say, yo, dog, I'm the brother of Jesus. Y'all listen. Right. Why wouldn't he just come out and say that? Well, there's probably several reasons why Jude doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus, but rather introduces himself as the brother of James. One is that you got to remember that not all the brothers believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, at least particularly early in Jesus's ministry. We find that in John chapter seven, verse five. And this, it's likely that not all of Jesus's younger brothers actually believe in Jesus now. Maybe many of them think maybe some of them or, or, or at least one or two of them believe that he's a hoax. And so Jude is aligning himself with James, who's a leader in the early church. That lends his letter some credibility. He says, yo, I'm on your side and I'm writing to you. You know, the person who you name drop often tells what side of the fence you're on. If I say I'm part of, I'm part of, I'm part of Donald Trump's campaign party, you know I fall on a particular side. But if I say I'm a part of Joe Biden's campaign party, then you know I fall on the other side, right? So by saying that he's the brother of Jesus may not clearly define what does he know and believe about the Christ. 
But by saying I'm the brother of James, who's a pillar in the early church, they know that this letter is coming from a friendly, not coming from a hostile. And so it changes how you read the letter based on the individual and the side of the fence that that letter is coming from. I hope that makes sense. This also may be Jude displaying his humility because he's the brother of Jesus and knowing that there's a possibility that he could try to pull that big gun out. He says, no, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus. I'm one in one with y'all out there. I may, I may, I may, I'm credible, but I'm not more important than you. I have a vantage point that you don't have, but I'm not more important than you. I'm simply, I'm, I'm the brother of James, you know what side I'm on, and I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know where, where I stand in terms of my importance. It also shows that he's unashamed of being a slave and a servant of our Lord Jesus. Right? He says that I'm a servant. He, he realizes, he's saying, I'm the slave, I'm the servant of my big brother. Not many little brothers are willing to say that about their big brother. I don't care how old you get. There's a comedian goes by the name of Michael Jr. And he had a joke talking about what it must have been like to be the little brother of Jesus. And it's how the parents are always like, man, why can't you be more like Jesus? And, you know, little brother's going to be like, man, I hate Jesus. You know what I mean? He's always, he's always perfect, man. I hate Jesus. You know what I mean? Like at, at, at this point, at this point, Jude is willing to be like, you know what? I'm unashamedly, I'm unabashedly a servant of my big brother. Jesus. No more is he is he hostile to his big brother who he was probably being compared to. Now he's like, no, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm unashamedly a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes me ask this question. Has culture made you ashamed of professing in public that you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll say that again. Has our culture made you ashamed to publicly confess that you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, don't let culture cause you to reject the name of Jesus. Your eternal, your eternal destiny is at stake there. Don't let somebody who doesn't really care about you cause you and call you um, or pressure you to reject Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. He says, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others... I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven. What's the idea? I'm unashamed of you, Jesus. And if we acknowledge Jesus before the before people here on earth, Jesus will represent us and be unashamed of us before the father in heaven. But look what else he says in verse 33. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my father in heaven. Have you denied Jesus? Have you rejected Jesus? Have you been unfaithful or disloyal to Jesus? You know what? The reality is our culture has put so much pressure on believers, especially believers that are ethnic minorities in this country and really pulling us to reject Jesus. But they're calling us to reject the Jesus that doesn't even exist. That's not even the Jesus we follow. And that's another sermon coming up in this series. Who is the Jesus that we follow? Who's the real one? But I want to call you Christians. And if you're a minority in this country and your culture is swaying you to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm calling you nah. You don't got to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be unashamedly a follower, a servant of this Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you've rejected him in the past, I want to call you to remember the apostle Peter who rejected him. But at the end of the day, he ended up giving his life for his Lord because he recognized the error of his ways. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains 
faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Should not the faithfulness of Jesus cause us to be faithful and lead us in faithfulness? If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this from me. Know that Jesus died for the faithless so that they may come to faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 10. For while we were still helpless, notice our condition. We were still helpless. What happened? At the right time, in the fullness of God's time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice who Christ died for. He didn't die for the perfect. He died for those who were still helpless, and he died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though perhaps for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us. God doesn't just talk a big game. He proves it. It says, but God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Christ died for sinners, y'all. He didn't die for the perfect. He died for the helpless. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinner who would be willing to place their faith in, the, in his name. Verse 10. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Amen. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Oh, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me. You too can be made right with God. You can be reconciled with God and therefore have Jesus's life save you. Just like Jude, who at one point was not a believer in his big brother Jesus as the Messiah, yet later placed his faith in Jesus and was made right with God, you too can be made right with God through faith in Jesus' name. Now, I know that some of y'all may be saying, man, I ain't trying to be nobody's slave, right? I ain't trying to be nobody's servant. Man, I think it's too late for that. I think you're already somebody's slave. Your slave master's name is Visa, MasterCard, Rent, Car Note. Now, all jokes aside, most of y'all or most of us are slaves to man's opinion. We allow somebody else's opinion of us to dictate and govern our moves. Some of us are a slave to our culture. Well, we allow the, the shaky waves of our culture to move us in such a way where we're more willing to be obedient and identified with our culture over against obedient and identified with our savior. Some of us are a slave to money. We go to the ends of the earth to attain it, to get more, to fill our bank accounts with it. We even neglect our families in order to attain this. Now it's a line between attaining it to have it and to gloat about it or to show it and have comfort in it and having it to support your family. That's not the same thing. Some of us work long hours to support our family and we're striving to get money, not so that we can be comforted by it, but because my family needs to eat. That's different. A lot of us are just trying to get money to get money so we can have more of it. The Bible tells us, though, that all of us are enslaved to sin. Romans chapter six, verse 15 to 23. Please take a time to read that. But if I'm going to be somebody's slave, if I'm going to be somebody's servant, I'm going to do so willingly. I'm going to willingly become somebody's slave. And, and on purpose, I'm going to be Christ's slave because the one who I serve gives me life and sets me free. Look at Galatians chapter six, verse one. For freedom, Christ sets us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke 
of slavery. If I'm going to be a servant, it's going to be the one who calls me an adopted son and an heir to the kingdom. Look at Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave. That means you are no longer unwillingly under anything or anybody. You have been set free in Christ. And if you are not a, not a slave, it says, but now a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. You see, ultimately, Jude was a servant of God because the Lord of glory called him, loved him and kept him. Have you ever experienced somebody calling you, loving you and keeping you? Maybe you were in a bad spot in your life and somebody was like, come on, man, you ride with me. And they started to show you all kind of love, right? Showing you love that you're wondering, like, what do you want in return kind of love? But they don't want nothing in return. They're just trying to show you some love. And then when you make a decision that they don't agree with or a decision that may be a bad decision, they don't cast you away, but they kept you. And they're like, no, I'm riding with you. At the end of the day, that kind of person showing that kind of love, man, we're willing to do whatever for that person to ensure that they are safe and sound, right? We're willing to contend for those people. It reminds me of a story that I read in 2014, back when the Ferguson riots were happening. And there was a storefront owner. He was a gas station storefront owner. And he would hire inner city kids from his neighborhood to give them employment at his storefront. And so he'd hire these kids and that would be one of their first few jobs. And oftentimes these kids had juvenile records. And so they couldn't get a job anywhere else. Well, when the riots started to happen, these kids, now men, armed themselves and stood in front of that store. And they made sure that no violence was going to come to that store or that storefront owner. They were willing to contend for him. They were willing to defend him because he showed unmerited grace to these kids. They didn't do anything to earn his favor. He was just showing love. He was just blessing the neighborhood by blessing these kids. And at the end of the day, you're willing to contend for that. Well, Jude is in a similar way calling Christians to remember that they are the recipients of God's calling, his love and his keeping. And that that should be a chief motivator for them contending for the faith. Look at Jude chapter uh, verses one and two. To those who are called, loved by God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. What does it look like then for the Christian to be called, loved and kept? What does that mean for us? It means that. That once you place your faith in Jesus, you are fully God's possession. It means that God has decided to bestow his love upon you. It means that God is not only going to begin your faith journey, but that he's going to see it all the way to completion. That he will never leave you nor forsake you, but that he's going to see you all the way home. We see this reality in Romans chapter 8. If we look at verse 28, it says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Those are the same grouping of people. Those who love God are the same ones who are called according to God's purpose. And so now the question is, why do those who are called love God? Well, those who are called love God because God first loved them or God first loved us. That's 1 John 4, 19. But we don't even have to leave Romans 8 to see that. We read verse 28. Let's read verse 29. It says, for those he foreknew. We can stop right there. That word foreknow 
is prognosco, which means to know before, but intimately, but in a loving way. It means it, it literally means for loved. For those God for loved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also what? Called. There's our word. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. He took them all the way home. He loved them before the foundations of the world, and he brought them all the way home in glorification with him. That truth, that reality that we are called by God, that we are loved by God, and that we are kept by God is all the ammunition we need. It's all the motivation we need to be compelled to contend for the faith. You see, we were called by God even when we weren't looking for him. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and redeemed our soul. And even post salvation, even post redemption, if we fall short of God's glory through sinning, we know that we are kept by God because we are sealed by the spirit of promise. It's all the ammunition we need and it's all the ammunition that Jude's hearers needed. He said, y'all, listen, you're called by God. You're loved by God. You're kept by God. And now he's calling them to contend. Now, they're compelled to contend. It reminds me of those Ferguson boys who were compelled to not sit idly by and allow uh, the, the, the riot to hurt or do violence to the individual who had blessed them so. The individual who had given them a shot, the individual who had called them, who had loved them, who had kept them. And that's why no matter what they were, their plans were to do that day, they pivoted and shifted their plans into defense mode so that they could protect what they saw as valuable, a valuable asset to their community. And Jude does a similar thing. He sees the, legit the legitimacy of a threat and he pivots. He turns. Whatever Jude was going to talk about, he decides to change what he's going to talk about because there's something here that demands our attention. Look at Jude verse 3. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. The urgency of this issue caused Jude to pivot. It caused him to go from talking about salvation to contending for the faith. Why? Because there was a legitimate threat against the faith delivered once for all to the saints. This should lead to a question. What is the faith? That's a great question. What is the faith? The word faith can mean trust, right? It's like you're placing your trust in something. It's a verb. It's an action word. It's something that you're actively doing. But the faith is the objective truths and teachings that we place our trust in, right? It's the noun. It's the person, place, or thing. And in Jude, it's speaking about the faith, right? The objective truths and teachings of the Christian faith. The faith is the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. He's saying that we need to contend for the faith, which is the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, because somebody's coming up, up in here trying to distort it. We see this in Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets. What does that mean? It means that God disclosed himself through the words of the prophets. He taught the ancestors through the words of the prophets. And it says at different times and in different ways. But look at verse two. 
in these last days, God has spoken to us or God has disclosed to us or God is teaching us how by his son, right through the son, Jesus. And so what Jesus does is they then commissions his apostles to carry forth the teachings of God. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Jesus tells his apostles to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Well, what does that entail? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And so Jesus is telling his apostles to go, therefore, and baptize and continue teaching the, the, the truth of God to the next generation. Our duty as the church is to be devoted to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, right? We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. That's the faith that Jude is talking about. But there are false teachers trying to infiltrate the church where Jude is writing to. And if what you believe affects how you live, then you can see how the two have issue because theological realities have moral implications. You see, bad theology will ultimately lead you to moral compromise. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking. You're like, yo, Pastor K, I know Christians that sin, though. I know Christians who supposedly have right theology, but they're cheating on their wives and lying just like everybody else. How come their right theology isn't leading them to right living? How come it's not leading them to right morals? It's a great question. I get the same answer. They're theologically compromised. They're not theologically compromised intellectually. They're theologically compromised practically. Their practical theology is all jacked up. When a Christian sins, it's not because they don't know who God is. It's rather because at that moment they decided to usurp God by being God so that they can satisfy their own sinful cravings and desires. See, at that moment, they broke the chain and God was no longer the object of worship. They were the object of worship. See, it's not that they had an intellectual theological issue. They had a functional theological issue. They didn't follow through with that which they say they believed. It's like prayer. We say that we believe in the power of prayer. We say that prayer is powerful, but we don't find ourselves praying. And it's either that we don't believe that prayer is powerful or we don't believe that God is actually hearing our prayers. You want to know what a person's holistic theology is? Somebody's holistic theology is the sum of their beliefs, actions, and motives. Truth matters, and we will contend for it. The reality of God matters. The reality of sin and morality matters. The coming of Jesus, who is God, matters. The sacrifice of Jesus matters. The method of salvation matters. The reality that Jesus conquered the grave matters. The triunity of God matters, amongst other essential doctrines. These we are called to contend for. These we are called to defend against. Because there are false teachers who are hoping to usurp God's truth in order for us to act in a way that is morally repugnant. And we'll see more of that next Sunday. But in light of God's call, God's love, God's mercy... In light of God's keeping us in Jude's commission, we as God's people have to be ready to contend. And that's not just a calling to the elders of a church. That's also the calling to the everyday Christians who abide at that church as well. And so Pillar Church, we will contend. We will contend for our faith. We will contend for the faith.
because there is a threat to truth. We will contend for the faith because our eternal destiny hangs in the balance. We will contend for the faith because freedom from oppression is a real goal. We will contend for the faith because our community needs to know the truth that will set them free and they need a hope that cannot fail. We will contend for the faith because Satan would love to have us walking in theological and moral darkness. Now, if you haven't trained to contend, you will surely lose. And so how do we prepare ourselves to contend for the faith? Firstly, we read for life. Reading with the expectation that if you apply God's word to your life, you will experience growth. We read to share. Reading the text, looking for a promise or a blessing to share with those around you. We read for truth. Reading in such a way as to avoid getting tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we pray for power. Praying that you be filled with the spirit and ready for every encounter. We have been called, loved, and kept by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pillar Church, consider yourself called to contend. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for calling us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I pray that your sacrifice is all the motivation we need to live out this calling that you have called us to and that we cannot sit idly by and allow violence to be done to your truth nor your church. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and dispatch your soldiers to do your will. We thank you and pray to you in Jesus name. Amen.